Okay, so we're, we're probably in here our, uh, our last week in a series, it's gone for six or seven weeks, called Proud to be an American. And we are specifically looking at getting into the history books kind of in a way that we've never done before, diving in particularly into the, to the history of America and just kind of asking some hard questions and, and coming against the narrative in our culture that Anything that can be connected to the, the founding fathers who were all racist and anything that can be connected to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution or ideals that the country was founded upon, that should all be canceled. And as we've heard that narrative strong this year, especially, it's like, it honestly just caused me to do study. That's where that book came in, that 100 Bible verses that made America and caused me to dig into the history books of our country and our nation and, and see where it connects with biblical values and biblical truth. And, and how do we walk that interesting line to, to navigate as Christians that we are primarily citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. That's where our citizenship lies. And yet while on earth... We have, we're citizens of earth, and we have that obligation and duty to walk out being followers of Christ in the public sphere. And I want to put up a, a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King that has been very uh, helpful for me into this time, uh, in this season even, of our, of our country. And I think Jake could jump to the end there and, and put that up. It's at the, kind of thing, the last slide. That helps me to navigate the, the challenging times we're in and what's, what's the role of the church in the public sphere. And Dr. King said it like this, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And I absolutely love that perspective on, on the church's role in society. He, Dr. King's getting to important aspects, even in this short quote, he's got, it's part of a whole message, but um, it, the reality that we, the kingdom of God is not coerced upon anyone. The kingdom of God can't be legislated into anyone's heart. I mean, Jesus makes that very clear. It's always this invitation. I mean, it's a challenging invitation, but it's an invitation to come into the kingdom of God. So when we're looking at the, the witness that we have as Christians and how that moves out into the public sphere, what is our role? And that's where we've got to be careful that we're not trying to force people into citizenship in heaven. That never works. It never has worked. It's gone really bad every time the church has tried that. So we have this opportunity, though, through our witness to prophetically call people, the state, the nation, call people to God. And the, the way in which it's prophetic it's, is where the, the Old Testament prophets often give warnings, where it's, hey, <laughs> At your own demise, you walk away from God. And there's these truthful, 
piercing calls throughout the, the Old Testament of these prophetic declarations that the, that the prophets bring of saying, this is God's way, this is God's truth. To your own peril, you ignore it. And that's what Dr. King's getting at in a way of uh, here of saying, we're not the, the master or the servant, we're certainly not the, the, the tool, but we've got to be the guide and the critic. We've got to use our lives to be public demonstrations of the way of the abundant life of the kingdom. And through that, it's a call to God. It's a call to repentance. It's a call back to God's ways and God's word. And we have a really unique situation in the United States of America because we can live out that prophetic call by saying it's not, it's not only a call back to Jesus, it's a call back to the way that the founders designed and envisioned this country to prosper because they had a dependence on God and his word. So we kind of have a double opportunity. It's ultimately calling people to God, calling people to Jesus by calling people back to the original intent of the founders. And that's what we've been going after in this series. And so if you haven't joined, if you're first joining us here, I would encourage you to look on our website, weareelevation.com and, and catch up. There's uh, six messages, I think, now uh, where we've looked back to see ways that not in any way saying America was perfect or all the founders were perfect. They certainly weren't. But there were some incredible, clear, biblical values, a clear dependence upon God and the Bible as the source of truth and morality that led to personal responsibility, that led to individual rights, that led to pursuing justice, that led to a hope for true uh, liberty within a society. So, in my humble opinion, the best that it's, it's ever been done. <laughs> okay, so today we're going to kind of wrap up with a question that's specifically around how does this public, what is this intersection of our faith and the public sphere? And I want to take us to an interesting collision of that that's happened right here in Menifee uh, within the last couple months. On July 24th, the Menifee School Board got this letter that will, will pop up, and I apologize if you can't see it. That's a little, a little small there. Um, but I'd be happy to send a copy if you're interested. It's public information right now. Uh, but the Menifee School Board got a letter from the Freedom of Religion Foundation regarding the unconstitutional prayer at school board meetings. Dear Superintendent Rutherford, I am writing on behalf of the Freedom from Religion Foundation regarding a constitutional violation in the Menifee Union School District. It's kind of funny. This is from July 24th. <laughs> and uh, guess what pastor prayed at that school board meeting right before July 24th. <laughs> I don't know if he's talking about me. It's kind of fun to think maybe he was. But uh, anyways, there's lots of great pastors uh, from our city that, that pray at those meetings. But anyways, timing was interesting. Anyways, uh, the Freedom from Religion Foundation is a, a national nonprofit organization with more than 32,000 members across the country including more than 4,000 members in California. Our purposes are to protect the constitutional... Listen carefully. Our purposes are to protect the constitutional principle of separation between state and church and to educate the public on matters related to non-theism. <laughs> 
A concerned district community member contacted FFRP to report that the Menifee Union School Board opens each of its fortnightly meetings with a prayer delivered by a clergyman who invokes God, Jesus, or both, which is all true. Um, okay, so, that, so it's, it's, it's threatening letter that says we're going to sue you if you don't stop. The separation of church and state, the constitutional principle of separation between church and state is what was apparently violated by these clergy members. So I want to talk about that phrase today. It's a famous phrase, often used to shut down or to attempt to shut down religion in the public sphere. You can't pray in the public sphere because the Constitution declares a separation from church and state. That's the, that's the, the message. This is obviously an attempt at intimidation. It's an attempt to further remove God and faith and scripture and prayer from public life in our country. We're told it's part of the Constitution. It's a violation, an unconstitutional prayer that happened at the school board. That part of the design of the country is built into the Constitution that there's this separation of church and state. So public prayers like that are unconstitutional and should never take place. So this is an important issue. And it, it, I imagine it might get more intense. It might get more uh, acute in our country. It's an important issue of religious liberty and what are the constitutional protections and freedoms that we have as religious folks, so to speak. So it's important to know the truth. It's important to speak the truth. It's important to live the truth. And I'll put this in the context of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul said this, We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Ephesians 4.14. Let me read that one more time. And Jake, if we could get that scripture up there. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. That's a very important spiritual reality about the spiritual battle that has been taking place, you could say, from the beginning of time. Lies so clever, they sound like truth. Is that not exactly what happened in the garden when the enemy came and said, is that what God really said? Oh, you'll be fine. Lies so clever, they sound like truth. That is where the enemy gets in and puts the veil of lies over people's lives. Lies so clever, they sound like truth. And so I do believe that it is absolutely paramount, according to God's word, that as Christians, we would be aware that not everything we hear should we take at face value. Oh, that's truth. Oh, I heard it. It must be true. And in some ways, that's like, no, duh. But there's another level of it of let's dig in then and be discerning. Assuming that one of the enemy's primary tactics coming against us and the world is to deceive people. He is the deceiver, Jesus says. He's been lying from the beginning, 
Jesus says, John chapter 8. So if one of the enemy of our soul's primary tactics is to deceive us with lies so clever they sound like truth, then as spiritual ninjas for Christ that we want to be, we should want to get really good at slowing down, taking it all in, and discerning what is actually true. Is there a, a, a lie here? Is there a lie so clever it sounds like truth? It's worth investigating because Jesus said it's the truth that sets people free. It's the truth found in him that sets people free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That's all that incredible passage of John 8. And so as followers of Jesus, we want to get really good at searching out the truth about any and every matter. A lot is at stake. Ephesians 4 says that when we don't know how to do this, then what's going to happen? We will be tossed to and fro by every wind of new teaching. Think about our lives. Think about the world around us. How often do just emotions sway to where people are all over here and then they're all over here and it's all over here and tossed to and fro by every new teaching. And the Bible paints a picture. No, God's people are meant to be so rooted in his word that as, yes, we're learning and growing, but we're not... We're rooted in him and steadily growing up into that oak of righteousness that Psalm 1 says about God's people. And so that's part of what we're trying to do in this series is let's get equipped with truth. Let's also practice going beneath the surface and discerning truth so that we can know the truth, speak the truth, live the truth, be that prophetic voice for truth out in our world. So when we come to this issue of the separation of church and state, I want to spend a little time digging into this here. For all you Constitution scholars out there, here's your question, and you can shout it out. Does the phrase separation of church and state appear in the Constitution? No. All right. Got some woke people. No, it doesn't. Where does that phrase come from? So it actually comes from a letter of correspondence between President Thomas Jefferson in 1801 to a group of Christians, the Danbury Baptists of Connecticut, who were concerned as this constitution is like a brand new thing, like ratified in 1789, right around there. So for about 10 years, it's been uh, a, the, the law of the land. And there's this group of, of Christians that are concerned. They're like, we don't quite understand this First Amendment, so we're concerned that it, it doesn't really protect us as religious folks, and our rights can get taken away. So they write this letter saying, here's our concerns, President Jefferson, and help us understand, do we have hope? Should we be scared? And so he responds to them. So basically... Their, their concern was this. They said, our, our con but sir, our constitution of government is not specific therefore, about what religious privileges we enjoy. We enjoy as favors granted, not as inalienable rights. 
So their concern was, they understood that the, the First Amendment, which says this, if you're not familiar with it, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So they read that, and their interpretation was, we're not seeing in that that religious freedom is an inalienable right, a natural law, as to use another phrase, an, an inalienable right given by God. We're interpreting that as something that the government gives us. And that scares us, because if the government gives it to us, it can take it away. And so that's kind of, that's a very important piece, because that's the whole Declaration of Independence, was saying there are certain inalienable rights that we, the government's job is simply to protect life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, etc. It's not the government's job to give them to you. The government does have that power because they're not the government's to give. They're God's to give. God gave them, and the government's job is to protect them from infringement by people or the government. And so these Baptist Christians are concerned. They're saying, we're not really sure if that's what the Constitution, First Amendment means. It sounds like the government is giving us those rights, and that scares us because we've seen what's happened before in religious history, and the government has taken those away quickly. So, Thomas Jefferson responds, and he says this, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to no, to no one other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, and some of this language I know is hard to grab onto, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, talking about the Constitution, which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise, therefore, thus building a wall of separation between church and and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation on behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore man to all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. <laughs> They're smart folks, right? <laughs> it's like, what? we got to get an interpretive team here. The, the, the bottom line that Jefferson is saying here, his, and the reference to natural rights is key. That was a, a very well understood phrase back then that's it, reaffirming the inalienable rights given by God to worship. The free exercise of religion is an inalienable, inalienable right from God not given by the government. So in other words, when, he, when Jefferson says, don't worry, there's a wall of separation between church and state, what he's saying is the intent of the Constitution is to put up a wall of separation between church and state, meaning that 
He's reassuring them that the Constitution formed this wall that limits the power of government to prohibit or to interfere with their free exercise of religion. That's the exact opposite of the way that that phrase is used now. The separation of church and state now is to say, religion, you can't have a place in the public sphere. And Jefferson's interpretation or use of the phrase the wall is the exact opposite. It's saying, don't worry, the Constitution is there to protect your right to freely exercise religion, and the government has no place to come and tell you that you can't. So that's significant. One other interesting piece is we just got to remember the context. Context is so key. In England, where the vast you know, majority of, uh, of the colonists came from that ultimately became the states and ultimately became the founders, there was a state-established church. It had happened to have been going on in the Catholic Church for over a thousand years, jumped over to, to England. Even in the Protestant Reformation, the Anglican Church became the state, and the king, various kings, starting with King Henry and on to King George, and on, et cetera, et cetera, and to King James, they all declared themselves as king, both head of the church and of the state, and they established a state religion, and to the point that said there can be no other expression of religion. If there is any dissent, you will be persecuted by the law. In fact, that persecution can include death for simply believing something different than the state says you can believe, than the state-sponsored religion. So that's why the pilgrims, for example, were called the separatists, the dissenters. And that's why they had to meet in Scrooby, England, in a little house as essentially an underground church. Because as they read the Bible, they said, hey, we don't think the Anglican church or the Catholic church has it all right. We believe that this is a better interpretation of the people of God and the church of God and the way that salvation in Jesus Christ through faith in God works or through faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace. So we have the conviction we've got to worship God this way. That literally would cost them their life because there is a state-established religion. So that's the context that the, the founders understood state religion to be. So when the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, that is to say we're going to protect this country from what happened in England and most of Europe, where one denomination, if you will, became the only possibility, and it was completely intertwined with government to the point where the government was declaring what was doctrinally right for the church, and if you disagreed, you could die. That's not a very good thing, the founders said. So we are not going to allow any one religion or denomination to be the state-sponsored religion in this country. That's the first clause. However, the second clause says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that's where there's the affirmation 
The Congress is not going to, has no power to limit the free exercise of religion because that's a God-given right that the government has no place to interfere in. And so that's why, in a very interesting and unique way, America has so many different denominations. They were exploring the freedom of religion because no country on earth had ever had it, like the United States established it. So some people look down, oh, there's all these different denominations, and sure, there's, there's challenges to that. But it, it was birthed in a freedom, rather than the state being the religion, saying, we will kill you if you believe anything other than this. The young America was like, whoa, they're not going to kill us. Well, let's explore some different things. What does the Bible say about this? And you get these various different denominations that emphasized different teachings in the Bible because exactly of the freedom of religion established in the Constitution where it says the government has no place to regulate that. It's not their job. It's not their right because it is an inalienable right coming from God. So, when we talk about the separation of church and state, it is so just important to know the history that in its current usage, it's literally the exact opposite of what Thomas Jefferson meant, and I would argue the exact opposite of what the First Amendment intends. And that's further emphasized by the fact that in the Constitutional Convention in 1789, when the Constitution was being written, or the Bill of Rights was being written, both of them, uh, when, so, and that's where the First Amendment is, the first of the Bill of Rights. And all, they have the dialogue. There's a, you know, a secretary typing down the transcript of everything that was said. And as this as being written, Guess how many times the phrase separation of church and state was used by the founders? Zero. Zero. So if we're going to look back into the history books and say, well, let's hear what they actually said about the First Amendment, you would think that if the intention of the First Amendment is to have a separation of church and state like we have it today where it's basically tried to be barred from the public sphere, you think the founders would have used that language at least once. Not once. The, it only comes up from Jefferson in his reassurance to the Baptists that don't worry, the Constitution protects you from the government coming in and limiting your free expression of worship. Essentially saying, what happened in England is not going to happen here. That's what the Constitution promises. So with that in mind, I want to take us on a, on a whirlwind tour here for like 10 minutes of did the founding fathers operate in a separation of church and state? Because that's an important piece of history too. If people today are going to tell Christians that we have no place in the public sphere. It is unconstitutional to pray in public because it's a violation of the constitutional principle. Clever wording. They said constitutional principle. You notice that? They didn't say the Constitution because that would be an outright lie. It's nowhere in the Constitution. So the lies so clever it sounds like truth is right there in that document. The constitutional principle of separation 
of church and state says you can't be in public. You can't pray in public. You can't quote the Bible in public. You can't demonstrate a public faith. So a very important piece of that argument is, well, then let's look at the founding fathers. Let's see what their lives did as far as living out their interpretation of the First Amendment and the separation of church and state. And let's let that be our guide. And let's let that, going now back to the Dr. King prophetic call, this is where we can call the country back to the ideals of the founders. So at the first Continental Congress in 1774, and I'm going to fly through this here. Some of it's, uh, we've gone over a few of these before, and then some new ones as well. Just look at the public display of faith, prayer, love of God, dependence upon God, all of these things that would be a supposed violation of the constitutional principle of separation in church and state, and I would say that is absolute trash. And in fact, you go back through the founders and you will see a deep dependence upon God lived out in the founders. In the public governmental sphere. So at the first Continental Congress in 1774, this is leading up to the American Revolution. This is when war with Britain is just in the air. They've in fact received a word that, that Britain was bombing Boston. That turned out not to be true. But this is a, a, a fearful time. It's like the revolution is coming to a, a, a bloody head here. It's, gonna, it's looking like war. What do we do? So for the first time, the 13 colonies got together and they were willing to discuss this, this possibility of independence, of revolution. And Thomas Cushing, a, a delegate from Massachusetts, home of the pilgrims, made a motion that before they get to any business of the day, they would start with prayer in Congress as an official act of Congress while in session. And John Adams got up and he said, I'm willing to to hear any man of of sincere faith regardless of denomination. And and he seconded the motion. And that is so significant right there because that's that free exercise clause and it's the anti-establishment where a lot of the, the denominations at the time were hoping you can look back into the history books. They were hoping that there would be an establishment of a denomination. I mean, it's really hard to turn down power, right? I mean, if, if the government right now said, hey, evangelical church in America, do you want us to legislate you as the official religion of America? It is now going to be taught in all public schools. <sighs> Woo! You'd have, you'd have a hard time saying no. So these denominations... Were, were, because of course it's like, well, if God's word can get out there. So these denominations were hoping that they would be the ones, not that heretic church of England and, and, and Catholic church, us, we've got it all right. We hope we get to be the established church in this land. And so for John Adams to say, to an Anglican local pastor, Jacob Duche, I nominate you to pray for us was a massive, step forward in kind of breaking down these walls, saying, no, an established religion in this country is not going to be a good thing from the state. 
We've got to have that free exercise. And so Jacob Duchesne, Anglican pastor, prays and, and brings down the house. Brings down the house to the point where John Adams wrote to his wife and said, I've never seen such an effective prayer. His, his direct words to her were, I never saw a greater effect upon an audience. And Jacob Duchesne was invited from that point forward to start each day's session of Congress in prayer as the first congressional chaplain. Is that not the public sphere? <laughs> Moving on. The Declaration of Independence itself, in the closing paragraph, reads as a prayer. Listen to this. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of American General Congress, assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. And moving on, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance upon the protection of divine providence. Etc., etc. Essentially, after they make a declaration of independence from Britain, they close with a declaration of dependence upon God. I mean, this is essentially a prayer saying, We are appealing to God for the rectitude of our intentions, which is a biblical precedent, which happened in the Bible, where in the Old Testament, and I'm forgetting the, the, the story, but that's exactly what they did. It was war was upon. The, the, the Israelites people, and they were being unjustly, they thought, invaded. And the king prays, God, if, if, if our intentions are pure, be with us. May the Spirit of God demonstrate the rectitude of our intentions. The founders got it from the Bible, and they made that prayer appeal to God in the Declaration. That's quite a bit of... <laughs> of a public display of faith. It's, it's enshrined in our freedom. And about that Independence Day that would go on to be celebrated, the Declaration of Independence has turned into a, a big, you know, party for the country. This is what John Adams said about it. The second day of July, which was the day it was actually signed and finalized on July 4th, Quote, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. He was right. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance. That's Old Testament language of the people of God, exodus from Israel. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. That's the president saying, like the people of Israel who had all these festivals as they celebrated their deliverance, like the Passover, we should do the same thing and make it a day of worship to God. July 4th, Independence Day, is a big party, a countrywide party, as an act of worship to God. In thanksgiving for what he's done. That's a rather clear display of faith in the public sphere. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, 
They were having struggles. They had met for four or five weeks, and they were bickering. They were fighting. There was division. And, and quite famously, as we've gone over this before, this unexpected source stands up. And maybe he had had a conversion experience in the Revolutionary War. But Ben Franklin stands up, who's known to be the least of the believers, if you will, in the Founding Fathers. And he quotes and he, he, he rebukes. He calls them back to their own faith and their own founding. And he says, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, we were sensible to danger. We had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard. And they were graciously answered. And so Washington responds a couple days later when the Sabbath day came, he took all of Congress to church in Philadelphia. <laughs> he said, this isn't working. Our human efforts are not working. Ben's right. We're not dependent upon God enough. You're all going to church with me. And they did. And, and the pastor prayed over them. We won't go into all those details. Beautiful prayer. George Washington finished with a all of Congress, leading Congress in the Lord's Prayer, and then they went back into the room and shortly later, later produced the Constitution, which it starts with, in order to form a more perfect union. It's so intertwined. It's, it's, it's laughable. It's sadly laughable when people come and say, oh, no, 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 no. There's no place for a public display of faith in this country. That's unconstitutional. But we've got to know the truth. We've got to know these stories. We've got to know the history to be able to call a nation back to where we began with such beautiful dependence upon God. At Washington's, actually, let me go back a little bit. The Constitution itself, after it was ratified, our second president, John Adams, awesome, strong Christian, by the way, said this about the Constitution. Quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. I mean, talk about the, the non-separation of church and state, if you're going to use the present definition... There, he, John Adams is saying the Constitution was written for a religious and moral people. That's who we are. That's who it was written for. At Washington's inauguration as the first president ever of the United States of America, after he put his hand on the Bible and swore an oath and kissed the Bible and everybody cheered, he turned back and went into Congress. And these were his first words to Congress. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the, visible, the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. In other words, we've seen God's hand the whole time doing the impossible. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. So in other words, 
Washington's very first words to Congress were public gratitude to God and a warning to follow God's laws. You catch that at the end? The smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order which heaven has ordained, which many scholars believe he's talking directly about the Bible, which he just put his hand on. That's a warning from the president. If you walk away from God, don't expect good things for the country. (laughs) From the president to Congress. Later that year, he put this same sentiment into what is now called a National Day of Thanksgiving. On October 3rd, in 1789, Washington made a proclamation about a nationwide holiday called Thanksgiving. Oh, look this up. This is, it's long. I mean, Washington essentially preaches a sermon on why this country should have a national day of Thanksgiving. And he lists and goes in this long sermon on all the things that God has done. And therefore, like the people of Israel, we should set aside a festival to give thanks. But I'll just quote a tiny bit. He starts off, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, Wow, that is not a separation of church and state. To obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor as a nation, whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested to me, quote, to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, establishing, especially by affording them an opportunity to peacefully establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now I therefore... So in other words, Congress came to him and said, God has been so good to this nation, we have to have a national day of thanksgiving. That was Congress's idea. And he says, Now therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next to be devoted by the people of these United States to the service of that great and glorious being who is the benefactor and author of all good that was and is or that will be. That's a combination of he was and is and is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And James 1 that says every good and perfect gift is from our Father of heavenly lights. That's where Thanksgiving came from, in this great separation of church and state. (laughs) And the creation of a national day of prayer. And we're we're almost done for those who are looking forward to brunch. 1798. I could go on and on. I'd be nice again. These are like half the notes. But it's like, there's so much not separation of church and state in our America. It is one of the easiest things, actually, if I was trying to be a lawyer, to prove. It's all over the place. We're only in 1798. So I'm just getting started. I hope you ate breakfast. Just got a few more. The creation of a national day of prayer and fasting. Now, this is offensive. A day of prayer and fasting. In 1798, President John Adams called 
for creating a countrywide, nationwide, National Day of Prayer. Here we go. March 23rd, 1798. John Adams, president at the time, says, Oh, again, this is a sermon. He wrote a sermon. Go look it up. I'll just give a tiny bit. As the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend upon the protection and blessing of Almighty God and the national acknowledgement of the national acknowledgement of this truth is not only an indispensable duty which people owe to him, but a duty natural influence is favorable to the, promo, to the promotion of that morality and piety, without which social happiness cannot exist. In other words, every blessing in life upon a nation comes from God. It is our duty to recognize that as a nation and thank God, and it's actually also for our benefit and happiness of a people because it keeps us in the proper posture of morality, which is acknowledge God for everything good. And then he goes on to say, So I have therefore thought it fit to recommend that Wednesday, the ninth day of May, may be observed throughout the United States as a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer. That the citizens of these states abstain on that day from their customary worldly occupations and offer their devout addresses to the Father of mercies. In other words, take the whole day off of work to humble yourself, to fast, to pray, to thank God. For everything good and that tradition still stands it's not a national holiday unfortunately but we have the first Thursday of May the national day of prayer which it was supposed to be held in this room for the city of Menifee last year where the mayor had already agreed to come and pray publicly the city council come and be prayed for so something messed that up but next year, it's going to happen. But that does not fit the definition of separation of church and state. Two more quick ones. Abraham Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, makes a proclamation for similar language to John Adams, a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. March 30th, 1863. It's long. It is a sermon. Look it up. It's incredible. But here's the summary of it. It is the duty of nations as well to recognize the, sublime, the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. That is incredibly offensive. I mean, he's quoting Psalm 33 too, saying, in this country, our dependence is upon, is upon the God of the Bible, and we've seen throughout history the only way to be an ultimately blessed 
nation, blessed, upright, just nation, is to follow the God of the Bible. And he goes on to further offend all of America by saying, and you're not doing it right now. And that's why we've got a civil war. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts. These presidents are preachers. Jeez, I wish I could talk this cool. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Oh my God. Wow. In the middle of the Civil War, the President of the United States' message is, come back to God. That is not a separation of church and state. And lastly, in 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower chose to add, under God, to the Pledge of Allegiance. And this was the motivation. Quote, From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. To put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance comes from the conviction that it is our nation's faith in God and our na- in the past and our nation's faith in God in the future, our deep dependence upon God, which is our greatest weapon in this country. So therefore... We want all the children of the land to learn it and declare it every day. Never forget that we began on an appeal to God. And it's our only hope for the future. We have an astonishingly rich heritage of our government leaders not living out the separation of church and state in any way, shape, or form like it's defined today. They lived it out exactly how they intended to write it and define it. 
that this nation would be founded upon an appeal to God and there would be the free exercise of religion wherever people wanted to do it. And the public sphere is the right and appropriate way as our presidents have modeled, as the Congress has modeled to unabashedly declare our dependence upon God and that when we don't, our message should be, you do it at your own peril. No nation has ever thrived and prospered in justice and righteousness without humbly continuing to declare our dependence upon God. Let's pray. Jesus, we declare our utter dependence upon you. As the Apostle Paul said, in you we live and move and have our being. And our only hope in the world is salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus, we honor you and worship you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. As you said, you are the way, the truth, and the life. The revelation of the heart of God. And no one can come to you. No one can can come to the Father except through you. So we declare our deep dependence upon you, Jesus. That we bask in the reality of being your beloved children through faith in Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection and that opens us up and into the kingdom of God. Whereas Ephesians 1 says, we now are co-heirs with Christ to inherit all of the blessings of heaven. We pray that you would help that become the greatest reality in the universe to us. And we pray that you help us with discernment and grace, but fire and boldness live out this faith in Jesus Christ in the public sphere. That is both an invitation to the world and a challenge to the world. At the beginning of the message, as I was just praying and worshiping, I felt like I saw um, a picture uh, that I want to just release over us as a body and even over our nation because I feel like um, God is in our midst and he is moving and... Um, this is a part of what he's doing right now. I saw a picture of, um, it was an image specifically of Romans 12, 2. Um, and I'm going to read that in the Passion Translation. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think a reformation. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. And the picture that I saw that went with that verse was of like a waterfall 
just of God's, um, it was a waterfall, but then there was also God's golden, and it was falling over each one of us, and it was transforming us from the inside out. And so, um, God, we just invite you to do that. We just invite you. We thank you that it doesn't matter how turbulent things are around us. It doesn't matter what is going on um, anywhere in our, in our environment, but that you are in us, that you are still strong, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead with that same life, that same spirit is within us, transforming us, reforming us from the inside out and spilling out over our nation with your power and your good news. And so, Holy Spirit, we just say thank you right now. We say thank you for you renewing our minds. Renewing our minds mean that, means that you are transforming our eyes and our hearts according to your ways, according to heaven. You are freeing us from bondage. You are freeing us from oppression. You are bringing your freedom, your goodness, and your abundance. Jesus, you came to bring us the abundant life. And so we welcome your waterfall over us to bring light to our eyes to bring your abundant life to bring heaven's transformation and we welcome you and we just declare over not only our congregation and everyone in this room but we just declare that over our nation that it doesn't matter how dark things look right now that we will rise up in faith with the power of your spirit and your resurrection power, that we are declaring that our nation is returning back to you. That these roots that our nation was, was birthed upon, founded upon, God, that we return to you and that the power of your spirit, like a mighty waterfall, is beginning even more to rush over this nation, that we would be a people of worship, worshiping the Almighty God, our Creator. In Jesus' name, amen. I will sing a new song.